Uh, please turn with me to Revelations chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 7 to 13. You can also follow along on page 8 of your bulletin. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. I'm a little bit under the weather uh, this morning, uh, so just please bear with me. I, um, I took uh, the wrong medication last night. Um, it's one that keeps you up, and I was up all night last night. And, uh, but made it here uh, so, uh, to be able to preach. So um, please bear with me. <clears throat> now, if you're new or visiting, for the past uh, few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is written to strengthen Christians who are living in a society that is hostile to the Christian faith, to Christian values. And through this book, the Christians uh, in, that, in those ancient times, they were prepared to face persecution, and they faced persecution. They were tortured, they were disfranchised, they were killed for sport, and yet they endured. Jesus offers us this amazing resource that once you digest it, once you consume it, once you take it in, it gives you the strength and the courage and the poise to endure, and we need that. We need that more than ever in our society today. Why? You know, after... (laughs) After pastoring uh, and preaching here for 11 years at Metro, I am convinced that the biggest threat to our biblical faithfulness here in our community is not sexual immorality, although that is an issue. It's not addictions, although that is an issue. These are still very big issues, but nothing like the reality that Christians here are compromising their faith. They're shrinking back in their faith. Now that they are on a great career path, now that they've got jobs and they've got salaries, now that they have retirement portfolios, now that they have homes that they're building and families that they're building and children that, are, that they're raising, now that they have an intact set of good relationships and friendships, we are forgetting God and we're placing Jesus on the periphery of our lives. And that's subtle and it's quiet, and yet it's quietly, we're quietly leading us to fall asleep. What's going to move us to endure? What's going to move us to be resilient? And the answer, at least according to this passage, is suffering, hardships. How do you deal with that? How do you cope with that? In other words, are you a person who's characterized as a person of endurance? Do you have a resilient faith? That's what this book is about. 
Now, we've said this before, but Revelation is a book of many images. And in John's letter to Philadelphia, obviously it's not this Philadelphia, not our Philadelphia, we're going to be looking at three of the major images in this passage that point to what it takes to become a person of endurance. First, in verses 7 to 8, we see a door. Secondly, in verse 7, we see the key of David. And lastly, in verse 12, we see a pillar in the temple of God. We see a door, a key, and a pillar. And that's going to teach us how to be a person of endurance. First, we're going to look at a door. Jesus says in verse 7, what he, that's Jesus, what he opens, that's a door, no one can shut. And then in verse 8, he says, I know your deeds. You see, I've placed before you an open door. Why? In verse 10, he essentially says, because you kept my command to endure patiently. In other words, it's Jesus who opens the doors and it's Jesus who closes doors. So it's very important not to focus on whether or not a door that you're expecting to be opened is closed, but rather how you respond to it. Jesus says you need to endure. In other words, your suffering, these closed doors in our lives, they have meaning. There's a purpose. I'm the one who opens the doors and I'm the one who closes the doors. So if you want to be a person of resilience, if you want to be a person of endurance, that truth that your suffering has meaning, that your suffering, that there's a purpose for it, that doctrine, it needs to shape you. Now keep in mind, throughout the New Testament, open doors are really metaphors that usually point to the opportunity to advance the gospel in a very powerful way. Look here, Jesus says in verse 8, I know you. He says, I, I, I see your deeds. I know you. And then he says, you, the church, you have little strength. In the Greek, that word is pretty much synonymous with you're puny. You're weak. You're probably not really that gifted. In those ancient times, there were probably a small fledgling group of people. You're not that large, and you're facing a lot of trouble. In fact, in verse 9, he says, even some coming from the synagogues. Our Jewish brothers, they're persecuting you. And so there's trouble not just externally, but there's trouble internally among your own people. It's coming from all different directions. But then he says, they're going to fall down at your feet. And they're going to see, they're going to acknowledge how much I love you. And so in verse 10, he says, just wait. Because as hostile as they are, I am with you. I will protect you. Yes, you're weak. Yes, you're puny right now. But one day they will all see that I've got you. I got you. And you're going to win them over. How? In verse 10, he says, since, in other words, because you endured. Doors may be closed to you right now, but I'm going to work through those closed doors. I'm going to work through it. I'm going to work through your suffering. I'm going to work through your brokenness. And I'm going to work through your response to that suffering and brokenness, and that will open other doors. It's a big irony. It's a big irony. Jesus is saying, people are going to see you, and then one day they're going to say they're going to respect you. These are people who mocked you. These are people who threatened you, and yet they're going to respect you. They're going to say that you're great one day. They're going to fall down at your feet. Not despite your suffering and mockery and hardship and closed doors, but through. I will work through that suffering and mockery. I'm going to work through that hardship and those closed doors. That's how they're going to see it. They're going to see you suffer. They're going, to, they're going to threaten. They're going to mock. They're going to insult you. And they're going to see how you respond to that, how you handle that, how you endure closed doors so that you do not compromise. 
what did they endure? You see, the text doesn't really say, so we don't really know, but because we don't know, that actually works in our favor, you can generalize that. Maybe they had to make sacrifices in their careers. Maybe because they are believers, they had to make sacrifices with wealth. Maybe they had to make sacrifices and make really tough decisions in their relationships. Maybe they experienced a lot of hardship and loss. It was something, and they were in pain. And Jesus says, be patient. I'm going to shape you through this. Handle it well, and more doors will open to you as a result. True greatness, like if you want to live a big life, True greatness comes from how you handle, how you endure suffering. God's going to shape you through it. And then he's going to use you in other ways so that, I mean, you're going to be stronger than you were before you ever experienced the suffering in the first place. Do you know Johnny Erickson Tata? It's like Johnny Erickson Tata. Do you know her? She was a very athletic woman. Her father was an Olympian. She had Olympic dreams herself. But in 1967... She's from Maryland. She was swimming in the Chesapeake, and at age 17, she dove into a certain part of the Chesapeake Bay and broke her neck and instantly was paralyzed from her shoulder down. Every known door of opportunity was closed, and at one point, she states that she contemplated taking her own life. She was bitter. She was depressed. But through that pain... Through that pain, you know, she says, my life is just going to pass me by. All these great things that I was expecting. I'm just 17. All these great things are just going to pass me by. What am I going to do with my life? Who's going to ever marry a person like me? Through that pain, she became a Christian. And through therapy, she learned to paint. And she learned to write. I mean, she wrote over 40 books. And she learned to sing. She actually came out with, uh, with a few albums, and those albums really became the precursor to a lot of modern Christian music that we listen to today. And today, she runs an organization for disabled people, and she speaks in conferences all over the world. I mean, her theological perspective on suffering, I mean, I'm a reformed confessional. If, you're, if you understand what I'm talking about, I'm a reformed confessional, uh, theologically driven person, and yet, I mean, her theological perspective on suffering, it is brilliant. Because she endured. Those doors were closed on her in an instant, and yet she endured. Because of the way she handled suffering, God closed some doors, but then through those closed doors, he opened other doors that made her great. So many others were won to the gospel through her. In fact, I was one of those people. Kobe Bryant, great NBA basketball star. Kobe Bryant says, it's never about winning or losing. It's about learning. It's never about the closed doors or the open doors. It's about how you respond to them. Suffering will be a great teacher in your life as long as you do not let it become your executioner. You got to know that it has meaning. You got to know that there's a purpose. Of course, I get it. I mean, there are definitely people in this room who are saying, but suffering doesn't always make you great. I mean, it can ruin you. I've seen people just devastated, well-meaning, well-intentioned, kind, good people just embittered by their suffering. It's devastated them. It's hardened them. It's made them more angry. It's made them more proud. And that's the point. The point is no one here in this room is immune to it. You can't avoid suffering. You can't avert suffering. You can't always elude suffering. And by the way, if that's your goal to do all that, then that kind of, that's a weakness. That kind of weakness, that kind of fearfulness will only make you weaker because you're not really learning. But when suffering comes, no one ever goes unchanged. Suffering impacts everyone. Either it's going to make you humbler or it's going to make you more proud. 
And Jesus says, you are weak. You're puny. You think you can open doors on your own. You think you can try to pry open something that's closing on you. I am the one who opens the doors and closes the doors in your life. You don't have that kind of control. You don't have that kind of power. You don't have that kind of wisdom. So you need to pray and trust. Pray for endurance and place your trust in me. There is a purpose in your suffering. There's a purpose for these doors. Secondly, he says, I have the key of David. Verse seven, these are the words of him who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. It's a reference really to Isaiah chapter 22. A lot of passages in Revelation are really just uh, drawn from passages throughout the Old Testament. You have to tie those images together and then really draw a line through them leads right to Jesus and right into this book. So it's a reference to Isaiah chapter 22. Remember, the people to whom Jesus was speaking to, the people to whom the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John was writing to, they were suffering. Or they were about to suffer greatly. But think about this. These people are being persecuted. They're, being, they're losing their jobs. They're being disfranchised. They're about to suffer greatly. The message that Jesus Christ holds the keys of David. To have the keys to anything is to own that thing. Is to have authority over that thing. And Jesus here is saying, I have the keys of David. Look, if you, have you ever been betrayed in your life? I mean, a room, you know, this size with people, this many people. Have you ever been betrayed in your life? Have you ever been hurt deeply by people in your life, somebody in your life? Have you ever been pushed aside by your community, just kind of overnight lose your community? These are types of closed doors. Persecution. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's socially. Maybe even politically. But you have to know to know that Jesus holds the keys, the keys to the kingdom. To know that he owns the universe. He says, I am the alpha and the omega. What he's saying there is that I, you are made by me and you were made for me. To know that I own the universe and that I, as a result, I can open or close any of these doors. I can open and Close the door to salvation. That should give us poise. What are these keys? You see, in ancient times, if you owned a home, they didn't, unlike today's homes, there was no main door of entry, like a storm door. You didn't just have like one main point of entry. So homes are constructed in a way where you can pretty much kind of pass through, and people, in fact, they did. They just passed through your house, and so you kind of had to keep your stuff locked up. You kept your rooms that, were, that held important valuables locked up. You kept things like your treasury locked up. All the rooms in your house that were important to you were locked up. So if you were a king, if you were a, a lord, if you were a wealthy landowner, you had a steward who were entrusted with all the keys to every door, to every room, to every lock that was entrusted to the steward. And in Isaiah chapter 22, that's the Old Testament reference to this passage, this image in, in Revelation, there was a man by the name of Eliakim. He was a steward to a king. And Isaiah says, one day, the ultimate, a greater Eliakim will hold the key to the house of David. Remember, a steward has authority, the authority to open or close any door because he ran everything. And so when Jesus says, I hold the keys, I hold, I have the key of David. What he's saying is, I am the ultimate Eliakim. I am the ultimate steward over God's kingdom, the entire universe. And my death 
and resurrection gives me absolute authority, gives me absolute ownership over everything, including our lives. Now, we don't like that. Not today, we don't. We like to think of everything as a discussion, a dialogue. We've got to talk on our terms. So what does it mean today to know that Jesus Christ holds the key? I'm going to say four things very quickly. One, it means we're not in control. If Jesus is holding the keys, we're not holding the keys. We're not in control. We are weak. We are helpless. That's what he says. Remember the movie Titanic? Billy Zane's character? He was the bad guy. Pretty much ruined his career. No one could ever see him differently. He says what in the movie? A real man makes his own luck. In other words, only you through your skills and your gifts, through your wiles, only you can control that in your life. A real man will be able to control it, take it, by, take it under his control. And Jesus says, no. You think you do. You think you can, but you can't. You don't. What I open, no one can shut. And what I shut, no one can open. Oh, you think you played a role in your successes, in any of your successes so far? Malcolm Gladwell, he's a New York Times best-selling author. <clears throat> he wrote a book, he wrote many books, but he wrote a book called Outliers. It's a very interesting book. Without getting into the book, he basically says that most of the factors that contribute to our success are things that we have no choice nor power over. We have no control over. I'm gonna give you some examples. He says, you didn't choose what time period you were born. You didn't choose your chromosomes. Scholars will tell you today that your intelligence level is largely inherited. You didn't choose your intelligence. You didn't choose your physique or your build. You didn't choose where you were born, what country you were born, what family you were born into, what status they hold. You had no choice in most of the things that helped to predetermine and set you on a path towards success. Now, there's people here who say, well, but I developed my strengths. I developed my gifts, right? I honed my talents, correct? How? Most cases, your gifts were discovered by somebody else, a certain person in a particular, maybe a particular mentor, right? In a particular circumstance, in a particular place. You had no idea any of that was going to happen. It was opened to you. It's why many scholars, many social commentators today, they say that you know, the gender sex identity question, that question is less about what is objective or what is real or what is true and more about what gives us greater comfort or greater control or greater power or greater authority over our lives. We want to hold the keys to everything in a way that will justify why we are here. Do you know how helpless we are. A few years ago, I was asked to write about how Metro grew, how Metro as a church grew in the aftermath of the pandemic period. Because all the other churches in our network and across the board, they were shrinking. You know, they were still recovering and slow. The recovery was slow. But we kind of exploded, we grew. And so I was asked to explain. And so I said, okay, I started to think. And I, and I was starting to write notes down. And as I was writing, I counted more than 15 key decisions that led to hundreds of positive outcomes in our church. But then it dawned on me. 15 key decisions that led to hundreds of positive outcomes. But then there were thousands of outcomes that could have gone wrong 
that were completely out of my control, and they didn't go wrong. None of this is in our control. It's all by God's sheer grace. And look, I'm going to go more personal and a little further. If you're new or visiting, you need to know that my wife and I, for years, for the better part of maybe seven years, we just tried and tried to have children. We just desired children. I mean, if you know anything about me, for about my, my primary ministry before Metro, for 30 years, I ran a youth camp. That's what I did for a living. And um, uh, as, as my primary ministry. And uh, so we just loved children and we wanted children. We knew thousands of other people's children coming through our camp and we had none of our own. And so we desperately wanted children and we tried and tried for years. In total, we lost around seven children through four miscarriages. You don't think that we tried everything? I mean, we Googled the crap out of stuff. You don't think that we tried everything that we could? We had world-renowned, I mean, Philadelphia is blessed with a great medical community. We had world-renowned physicians. We had world-renowned experts, a panel of experts at our disposal, advising and, and consorting. We sought alternative forms of medicine for that matter, but it was awful. There was to no avail. It was awful. The first time that we miscarried, I'm staring at the, uh, the ultrasound. My wife is kind of hunched over, so she couldn't see. And I just knew. My heart just sank. Instantly I knew, because as soon as they lit that thing up, it was dark in there. Last week, it was vibrant. This week, this isn't normal, right? And I could tell the doctor was trying to, to kind of hide or shield her concern. But then at one point, she said, I'm sorry. I was floored. I mean, we didn't even conceive that that was possible. Because we don't talk about these things enough in the church. The second time that my wife miscarried, I mean, we just went home and we just collapsed into our bed. We just collapsed. We were speechless. We were crying. We fell asleep. After hours, my wife gets up. And this is what she says. She says, you know, all these years, through every up and down, we have seen God's faithfulness in our lives, we're not going to start questioning God's faithfulness now. We're not going to do that. And then she said, let's go to Tarkin. If you ever met my son, David, today, I mean, he carries the beauty of all those children that we lost. Those were seven closed doors, four closed doors, I suppose. And we look at David and we say, we're only grateful. We're thankful that we're not in control. You know why? I mean, any of you in in the medical profession, you know that every birth is a miracle. Every birth is a miracle. There are so many stages to conceiving, let alone giving birth, that we have absolutely no control over. We're thankful that we're not in control. How do we come to that? Suffering shapes that. We're not in control. Secondly, without Jesus closing certain doors, without suffering, you never know who you are. You never get who you are. What do I mean by that? If you come from any kind of money, you know, if you've got some wealth in your life, if all you've ever known, let's say, is is comfort and and you've got plenty, you're never in want, you've got ease in your life, maybe growing up, and, and you never really had to struggle a lot, you never experienced a lot of loss or failure, which is actually a reality that is normal, you end up quite, quite shallow. 
Peter Berger, he's a renowned sociologist. He was a professor at Boston University, Boston College. Uh, he taught at Rutgers University, the New School in New York City. Uh, Peter Berger is a famous, famous sociologist. He says this, it's like living in a world without windows. Like you can live a very shallow life, a very selfish life, completely blind to the reality that something greater, someone greater is out there in full control. God, he says, a sense of calling, he says, because he relied so much on that sheltered lifestyle. And so it's actually very, very limiting, like a world without windows. That's what he says. Why? Think about this. If you've never carried a burden, a real burden in your life before, then you can never say for sure, am I really resilient? Can I be an enduring person? You would never be able to answer that question if you've never suffered. In fact, heaven, I'm gonna to submit to you, heaven is more heavenly because of suffering. Why? Because without suffering, there's no such thing as genuine bravery. Without suffering, there's no such thing as genuine sacrifice. Without suffering, there's no such thing as genuine triumph. Without suffering, there's no such thing then as genuine victory. All those things when we watch those movies that we say, wow, that is beautiful. Those books that we read, those fairy tales that we've heard, there's something about that moves us. Why? Because we know in the end that the door of suffering through suffering is oftentimes how we experience and understand what triumph and bravery and courage and poise amidst, amidst suffering really is, amidst tragedy really is. You see that? In fact, there would be dimensions then that would be missing in heaven without suffering. Until you've been tested, until you experience that fight or flight sensation. You will never really know if you're truly courageous or if you're a coward. In the same way, you can't know how impatient you are, how unkind you are, how uh, unloving you are, how selfish you are until you start to sweat, until you start to groan, until you've been mocked, pressured, beaten up, until you shed tears, until you cried. Doors closing very important in our lives. Why? Because they reveal and they, and they shape who we are. Thirdly, without closed doors, without suffering, you'll never know what you really value. You never know what you're really about. It's not until you've invested in something or invested in someone and you lose it that you see how helpless and out of control you really are in your life. It's not until... It's not until you've built your life around your wealth before or you've built your life around having a good family or you've built your life around, you know, we take our health for granted, don't we? we how much we take our health for granted? Or you, you build your life around your love life. It's not until those things crumble. It's not until those things fail you. That's when you realize how shallow and yet how desperate we really are. St. Augustine, that great pioneer theologian, he once said that that question, what do you love, is the most important of all questions in our lives because we are so easily enslaved by things that we love most apart from God. But when there's trouble, boy, when that well dries up, that's when you realize that you've placed your trust in an idol 
Well, what is that? You see, in ancient times, the idols were physical and visible. You had figurines made of wood or gold or silver or bronze, and you placed them in a shrine and you worshiped them. You gave alms to them. You paid them, essentially. You paid tribute to these, to, these, to these little figurines because they represented the God of commerce or the God of fertility, the God of, of good weather, which is the God of agriculture. It was an agrarian culture, you see? Today, we've traded in, we've done away with the figurines, and they become much more abstract. Our compromising our faith is built on what? We're still worshiping the God of commerce, the God of business, the God of family, the God of sex or relationships. We're still worshiping the God of approval or desiring the acceptance of other people. We've traded in the figurines, but we're still very, very idolatrous. An idol is anything apart from God that you rely on to give you a sense of worth. What you're saying, if I just have this thing, then I know I'm okay. If I just have this thing, that will be the centerpiece of my joy. If I just have this thing, then I'm going to be all right. Then I'm going to be happy. Then I'm going to be joyful. The Bible says that's a grave error. That's a grave mistake. Why? Because you're building a skyscraper on sand. And when those rains come, and they will, when that tide rolls in, oh, and it will, you're going to suffer. You want to build on a rock. And if you want to build on a rock, solid ground, sometimes we realize that we've been building on sand. We need to suffer to see that. It's the only way that we see that those towers that we've built up in our lives have been challenged. Everything else is going to crumble. Everything else is going to fall. And idols anywhere where you think, anything where you think, this is going to be a key that's going to unlock all the doors that I ever wanted for me to lasting love, the door to lasting love or lasting security or lasting power. But when you suffer, then you realize, wow, these things have had a stranglehold on me. These things have an unhealthy grip in my life. They're idols. They're fragile. I've placed Jesus on the periphery. My relationship with him was supposed to be the most important thing, and yet I've turned my attention. I've been obsessed with these idols. And they're fragile. It's like building on sand. Because only God, the Bible says only God is solid ground. Only your relationship to God is a rock. Well, then suffering is a revealer or what you've built your life on, what you really value, what you really cherish, what you worship, what gives you a sense of worth, what makes you anxious day to day, what is your biggest nightmare? Therein lies your idol. And so lastly, as a result, closed doors, if you process it well, closed doors will humble you. Suffering can humble you. Suffering can soften you. In verse 8, Jesus says, I know your deeds. Essentially, you have little strength. You're weak. You're puny. You're small. You're a fledgling community. And yet, in the midst of persecution and trial, in the midst of all this hardship, people are turning against you internally and externally. And yet, I see your deeds. There are closed doors everywhere in your life. And yet, you're still gracious. You're still kind. You're still demonstrating welcome and friendship. The warmth of the gospel is flowing through you. And as a result, he says, you kept my word. You've obeyed. You've not denied my name. What is he saying? These doors, they seem closed, but you kept holding on. 
You kept holding to my word. You've obeyed. You've demonstrated compassion on other people. I see your deeds. And then he says, I have the keys. And I have placed an open door then that no one can shut. In other words, these closed doors, they've humbled you. They've shaped you. And because they shaped you, the fruit of that is your kindness and your goodness, your deeds. And it's leading to new open doors. He says, greater than anyone could ever dream, one day, even those people who've mocked you will fall at your feet and acknowledge that I, how much I love you. Wow. Jesus, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to do great things through you because I have the keys. You may not be in control, but Jesus has the authority. The authority to close doors and open doors. So don't complain about the closed doors, he's saying. Because those closed doors, through your response, will make you great, will make you more like Jesus. But that also means that he has absolute, you have to trust that he has absolute control, absolute authority over your life. Look, you angry? Have you been angry about closing doors or closed doors in your life? Like you're trying hard to you see a door closing. You're trying with all your might to keep it propped open. You're investing energy and space and time to do that. Or maybe the door is already shut. You've been locked out. And you say to yourself, I mean, God's supposed to be good because I don't see him faithful. I don't see him as just. I don't see him as loving because if he was loving, this would never happen. But only he knows what. And only he knows why he's got the keys. And so your closed doors, if you just trust him, it humbles us to trust that Jesus is our authority. He's our authority. And when you can grasp that reality, when you can trust that, when you can surrender to that, you can respond with poise in your hardships as well. Jesus says, thirdly, I will make you a pillar. You're going to be a pillar. At the end of verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, you're held on, and I'm going to make you a pillar. What is that? It's a foundation. It's a solid rock. Why were these doors closed? Why were they locked down in the first place? You know, I mean, we think that we're always wise enough. We do all the research. We consult experts. Anytime something goes wrong, the first thing we do is we go to Google or we, we consult experts or maybe even friends. We'll go to anyone else oftentimes but God and we'll to seek wisdom to determine what's good for us. And we think we know. I mean, everyone's got that one person in their lives, that, at least one friend, who never seeks counsel. They talk about community all the time, but they never really seek it. They just inform you of things. They just notify you of what things, things when they make decisions. But the decisions are made in a vacuum by themselves when they want. Why do they do that? You want to know why? Because they're afraid you're going to close their doors. That's why. They want something so bad, they're afraid that somebody who knows them really well will say, not yet. Brother, sister, not yet. Friend, not yet. You're not ready for that yet. You're trying to... to to open a closed door with your own keys. So how do you become a pillar? Jesus says, you are weak, but you held on. You trusted. You were humble. And to the degree that you trust, to the degree that you hold on, you're going to become wiser and stronger, joyful, grateful. Sometimes that means you're going to be waiting. 
Sometimes that means you're going to be super disappointed. Sometimes it means you've got to give things up. And when you give things up that you really love, it's like suffering. You know what it's like? It's like you're dying. When you really love something and, it's, and you have to kind of let it go, it's like death. So why does he call us a pillar? You see, in ancient times, Philadelphia, in ancient Philadelphia, it was known to have a volcano. And of course, where there's a volcano, in fact, it wiped out two cities in that area, including this city. Right? It was known to have volcanoes, and wherever there are volcanoes, there are earthquakes. So when a big earthquake comes, everything shakes. Everything, I mean, some of you, you come from California, you know. I mean, you frequent earthquakes, so you know. There's earthquakes all the time. Everything starts to shake. But when you have a violent earthquake, everything quakes, everything crumbles, and these people knew. They're so used to not living with permanence. They knew because of where they lived, where they resided, there's no such thing as solid ground. Everything is temporal. Nothing is going to last. So when Jesus says, you, I will make you a pillar, what is he saying? He's saying, you are going to last. In this crazy world where nothing is forever, I will make sure that you are forever, that you are permanent. You know what a pillar means? A pillar means, look, I don't know why the doors are closed, I don't know why I'm suffering. I just know that it, that suffering is not forever. That suffering will come to an end. You know why? Because someone else came to take the ultimate suffering, that forever suffering, away. Most major religions will say that their God has the keys. Their God is in control. But only a Christian can say that my God, Jesus Christ, came down and he experienced, the root word is expert. He is the expert. He experienced what it's like to have the biggest doors close on him. And so he's at the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's about to be arrested. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there at the Garden, Jesus cries, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You know what he's saying? He's looking into the, he's just getting a glimpse, just a mere taste of what it's going to be like to experience the cross. And he's starting to see that happening. So he's staring down that abyss, that ultimate darkness, the ultimate aloneness, the ultimate furnace of the wrath of God. And what does he do? Does he consult his friends? No, he asks his friends to pray. He prays. You know what he prays? Let this cup pass from me. In other words, I see the ultimate suffering. I see the ultimate furnace. I see that door to salvation closing in my life, the cup of God's wrath is now about to be poured out. I'm going to be locked out from access to you, my father. You will be taken away from me. This is my biggest nightmare. It's like because you're being taken away, it's like I'm dying. So he says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's almost like he died twice. You understand? Jesus is suffering. What did it reveal for him? What did it reveal about what he loves and what he values? God and his relationship with God, one with God, was at the center of his life. And so he says, do not let this cup pass. He says, let this cup pass from me. He's writhing in his prayer. He's suffering so much that they said that, it's, that he's sweat through his blood. He started to bleed. Why? Not so that we would never suffer again, but so that when we suffer there would be meaning. There would be purpose. 
So when we suffer, we will be shaped to become more like him. I mean, he could have complained. Jesus Christ is the most perfect person that ever walked the face of the earth. He could have complained. He could have said, well, this is my right for you to not give me what I deserve, which is honor and praise and worship. That makes you not good. That makes you not faithful. That makes you not just. That makes you not loving. But you know what he says instead? Not my will, but yours be done. In other words, I've kept your word. I've obeyed. I didn't deny you. I endured. In other words, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to endure because of my love for you, glory to you. I'm going to endure because I trust you. This is Jesus, one with God. And yet even he had to trust, and he handled that closed door in his life perfectly. Jesus Christ was betrayed. Jesus Christ was hurt by his own friends, denied by his own friends, rejected by his own friends. Jesus Christ was rejected by man. He was rejected by man. He was beaten. He was outcast. You want a door to be open because sometimes we're lonely or we want wealth. We think that this stuff is going to get us places. We want to be loved. We want status. We want to be accepted and loved by and approved by other people, meaning we want meaning in our lives. But Jesus Christ he suffered the ultimate aloneness, the ultimate poverty, the ultimate demotion and status, the ultimate mockery and insult and rejection. The two criminals. I mean, even the criminals were mocking him at one point. He suffered the ultimate meaninglessness. There were people on the cross watching a man who claims to be king dying on the cross, and he said, this kid is meaningless. If you really are who you say you are, you should come down right now. This is meaningless otherwise. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm banging on that door. Please open this door. I need you. I want you. You are the center of my life. It's like my heart is being ripped out of me. Salvation is closing on me. And I gave up the keys. I no longer have access. I've been forsaken. Every door to my life to salvation has been shut. Every escape has been closed off and now I'm shaking and I'm quaking and I'm writhing in suffering on the cross. Jesus Christ crumbled. Did you know there was an earthquake at the cross? At Gethsemane, he says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of the, he's collapsing and writhing. He's shaking. But this, the cross, this is the real quaking. This is the ultimate nightmare coming to, coming to a reality. And so his soul is crumbling, caving in to death. He fell apart. Why? Why, friends? Jesus Christ experienced the door closing on him so that our door will never be shut on us. Jesus Christ lost access to God so that we can have ultimate access to God, reconciled to God. Jesus Christ was shaken to the core. Why? So we would be made imperishable, unshakable. And so look at Peter. Peter was a disciple, later on an apostle, but Peter was a coward. He was an empty boaster. He was a betrayer, a denier of Jesus. But Jesus, knowing this, says what? He calls him Simon. Simon was his name. Simon, you're going to be Peter, which means what? Rock. You're going to be a rock. And on this rock, on you, I will build my church. You know what that means? We have the same promise. Where? Where does it say that? First Peter chapter 2. That same Peter writes, we are living stones 
built up into a spiritual house. We're like these little stones, these little pillars, weak and yet built up by God, building up into a spiritual house. God didn't save us despite Jesus' suffering or brokenness or pain. He saved us through Jesus' suffering and brokenness and pain. And if he does and brings about the ultimate salvation through Jesus' suffering and brokenness pain, what do you think he can do through you? That suffering, that closed door, Jesus handled that suffering perfectly for us. And so that opened the door that no one can ever shut for us. Look at Jesus sweating and groaning and just being mocked and insulted, beaten up, be, crying tears, for, and yet see him forgiving you and loving you. You want an expert on suffering? He is the ultimate expert. He experienced the only closed door in our lives that could ever truly be locked, that could truly lock us out forever. For Jesus, a thousand things could have gone wrong, and they did. And yet he surrendered. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's what he says. He trusted. He gave up control because of his love for his people, because of his grace. Look at the faithful love of Jesus. Look at the enduring love of Jesus. One day, I can say this because I'm older than most or all of you. Something's going to come into your lives one day, and it's going to make you quake. And if that's not going to humble you today, you're going to learn that eventually, eventually you're going to come to grips with the reality that we have no control. So that suffering is either going to make you crumble or it's going to make you humble. You're going to surrender to God and trust that Jesus holds the keys every time we suffer. But he's got the keys and that door will never be shut. I am his and he is mine. Only he can close doors. Only he can open doors. Let that, take that in. Work it against that bitterness and that anger. Will you be able to say one day, my closed doors are nothing compared to Jesus being ultimately locked out from access to God for, for, for all time, for me. God is so loving. He's so good. He's so wise, so just. I can endure this closed door in my life because it's a smaller closed door to the giant door of salvation that has been opened to me for all time. Surrender to that authority and trust that he just loves his people. I mean, how can you doubt that Jesus loves his church? Every time we look to the cross, there's the evidence, there's the proof. Trust in Jesus. Hold on, he says and you will become a pillar. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray.